what we're going to address today is what it means that Jesus is the only begotten Son. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people misunderstand what that means because they've been, I'll say on one hand, indoctrinated to think a certain way about Jesus being begotten. Um, but maybe just, you know, uh, un- also on the other hand, uneducated. So it's this dual kind of problem where people are not even educating themselves, but they're being wrongly uh, educated on the other side. And so I want to help you guys understand, like, Jesus being only begotten in the scriptures. And I, I'm not going to, like, overstate this. This is not like a, an exaggeration. When I say that Jesus being the only begotten son um, is, is probably the most foundational teaching to our Christian faith, I really mean it. In other words, everything about our faith, everything about our standing, our identity, our position, our gifts, um, our blessings, our eternity, it hinges on Jesus being the only begotten Son. And we're going to unpack this, you know, when we get to how this affects us now, real time. But you need to understand, like, if you don't understand what it means that Jesus is the only begotten Son, you'll, you'll misunderstand who you are. You'll misunderstand what it is that God has done for you. You'll misunderstand what it is that you have access to now as born-again children of God. And so I I really hope that this is, yes, this is me helping you understand that Jesus is God in the flesh. I want you to see it. I want the scriptures to share that. I want the scriptures to prove that. But this is also, um, for me, uh, helping you see your new life in Christ and your position in light of God and what he's done for you. Because Jesus being the only begotten Son is what makes a way for you and I to even be able to be saved. The fact that I'm righteous and holy and blameless and and all have access to all the blessings of God in Christ, that's only possible because of the fact that Jesus is the only begotten Son. And so the last episode, we talked a little bit about how in Hebrews, it gives us this picture of Jesus being the only begotten Son, and Hebrews is painting a resurrected King who conquered death, who won back our authority, who gave us access to the kingdom, who's been appointed our high priest and our mediator, and we'll get to that. But when we talk about Jesus being the only begotten, it literally means one of a kind, the unique one. Jesus is the only, as we're going to see in Scripture, Jesus is the only unique God-man. The Greek word used for begotten is gneo. Um, which means in almost every context, and I'm, I'm going to show you in the scriptures today, we're going to look at where that word is used, where the root of that word is used, how it's used, the context, and we're going to unpack how it's used in these contexts and how that relates to Jesus. But the word geneo, almost in every context, it means to give birth to, um, or for someone or something to be uh, brought forth. It does not always, and I'm going to show you, It does not always mean to physically give birth to something. In some contexts, the word actually does carry that that meaning. But in a lot of contexts, what you're going to see is at least, at least in every context, the word geneo used for only begotten actually means to bring forth. Sometimes that's bringing into existence. So for instance, um, let me take you to 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. I'm sweating because it's hot in my house. 2 Timothy 2.23. Hopefully you can see it on the screen. Nope. I'm glad I checked. Always happens. Always happens. Let's fix this real fast. I got to fix this bug somehow. It always does this. And I'm just tired of it. Okay. Nope. Did that not work? <gasps> no. There we go. Welcome to 2 Timothy 2.23. Let me show you. Okay. The word right here for breed is actually going to be the same exact word. The word 
you know, gneo to produce. In other words, what I'm going to show you is the word gneo to bring forth does not always have a physical connotation to it or a bringing into existence. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.23, it says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels or will produce, result in quarreling. So our ignorant controversies as people who get hot-headed and arrogant and think we know it all, you know, when you find yourself in those situations where it's foolish, ignorant, and it's a controversy that, frankly, you shouldn't even be having, that's going to breed, or gneo, quarrels. It can also refer to, the word gneo in the Greek can also refer to the spiritual rebirth or regeneration act that Christians experience. So when we're born again spiritually and the Spirit of God <clears throat> makes us come alive, makes our spirit come alive, you might say uh, there's a gneo happening, a bringing forth. Um, Philemon chapter 1 verse 2, or verse 10 rather. This is what Paul the Apostle says about Philemon, the runaway slave to Onesimus. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, he's talking to um, Philemon, sorry, he's talking to Philemon about Onesimus. And Paul goes, hey, you know, Philemon, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. He's not a physical child of, of Paul. <laughs> he didn't come from the loins of Paul. But watch how what he means when he says, my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. It's this idea of uh, becoming the father to. This is the language used of Jesus, where the father will say, I became the, uh, the father of the son, or I beget the son, or I brought forth the son. It's the same idea, to become the father of. Now, when it comes to Onesimus becoming a sort of child to Paul in his imprisonment, the word there actually um, refers to becoming. It has a dimension of becoming what he wasn't previously. Okay, so... Um, um, what I want you to see, and you can look up the Greek word gneo on your own and look at all the different contexts it's used in. It's not always a physical bringing forth. It's not always a being born and brought into existence. In, the, in this specific scenario, it's actually Paul in prison taking Onesimus under his wing and being to Onesimus what he was not previously before. He takes him under his wing and, 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 and Onesimus comes to know the Lord. He comes to give his life to Jesus. He's born again. And then by Paul being a part of that process, there's a spiritual element of, of this fatherhood being brought forth, where this relationship that wasn't previously there is now brought forth. And so he becomes, to Onesimus, what he wasn't previously before. Same idea in 1 Corinthians 4.15. The becoming a father to, or the begetting, that's the idea. Um, okay, so 1 Corinthians 4.15 it says, even though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. Notice the father language. Same with 2 Timothy 2.23. It's as if foolish controversies become the father to or breed quarreling. And in Philemon 1.10, Paul becomes the father of, spiritually, Onesimus. And here, 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says, look, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Does that mean that Paul was brought into existence? Is that what he's referring to? Of course, Paul's created. We know that. But the point is, is he referring to coming into existence as it relates to the church in Corinth? No. He's talking about when I preach the gospel to you through your faith in Jesus, you became my spiritual children. It's as if if there's a family tree and Paul's, you know, there. Well, then when he preaches the gospel and they believe now underneath Paul, you have these children 
who are born again through Christ by the Spirit, and Paul becomes a sort of father to them, a spiritual father figure, right, by, you know, bringing them into um, the faith and preaching the gospel. So him becoming a father to the church in Corinth has nothing to do with physically coming into existence. It has nothing to do with being created. If anything, all it refers to is Paul taking on or becoming a different role to the church in Corinth than he was prior. And so the idea of begetting or uh, being only begotten, okay, the word geneo, it has a dimension of becoming. I really want you to see this. Whether you look at 2 Timothy 2, Philemon 1.10, 1 Corinthians 4.15, the, the, the word has a dimension of becoming, okay? This is why other translations will say that God became the father of Jesus as if he wasn't previously the father, but it's a validating statement. It's a Jesus becoming man. It's, a Jesus, it's Jesus taking on human flesh and becoming what he wasn't previously. It has nothing to do with being created. And so the question becomes, was Jesus begotten? Was he brought forth? yes. He was revealed. He was brought forth to the world, from the dead, by the Father, all those different elements. At the baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration, through his signs and wonders and miracles and and faithful preaching and authority, all of that validates God being the Father of Jesus, the Divine Son. It's a beginning. It's a bringing forth and a revealing. So, yes, uh, Jesus was born into the world through the Virgin Mary. He became a human being. But the eternal word, John chapter 1, emanating from the Father, always existed with the Father. This is not Jesus coming into existence. If anything's coming into existence, it's his human life. It's the human nature he puts on. That is what was fashioned and created for Jesus to fit into and put on, but he previously already pre-existed that. He's not coming into existence. And this is where people just fundamentally misunderstand what it means that that Jesus is brought forth or revealed or begotten. Okay, so there are two things that I really want to address. First, this word geneo, translated only begotten, it does not automatically mean Jesus is created. That's a false conclusion to come to. It's ridiculous. Um, as if he didn't previously exist his human life. That doesn't logically follow. Number two, this is not the only birth Jesus undergoes. Jesus being born through the Virgin Mary coming into the world, that's not the only birth he undergoes. The main kind of begetting, when it says Jesus is begotten, the Muslim, the Jehovah's Witness, and any other religion that minimizes Jesus, what they focus on is the human birth. And they're focusing on, he came into the world, he was created, he came into existence. And they failed to to understand that the whole point of Jesus being begotten in scripture, it actually refers to something entirely different. It doesn't have in focus the virgin birth. It doesn't have the incarnation and the conception in, in mind. The main way Jesus is brought forth or begotten of the Father, it involves an entirely different event. And this is where Jesus becomes something unique. So there's a kind of birth involved where Jesus is called the only begotten because of his uniqueness. So when you trace out the idea of only begotten, okay, when you when you look at the word geneo, there's a uniqueness element to it. You can look at the word, unique, one of a kind. So the idea here is that somehow 
Jesus is unique, one of a kind. You might say in a class all on his own. And so what we have to ask is what does that mean? That Jesus is unique. What we know for sure is that his uniqueness relates to what it mean, means that he's only begotten. And uh, maybe I can pull it up on, on uh, Bible Hub right now. Hold on. I'm going to look up, I don't know, any verse that has Jesus being the only begotten. Uh, Hebrews 5.5. 5. We'll go Hebrews 5.5. 5. See if I can pull this up. Okay. So you're going to see in Hebrews 5.5, 5, the begetting is becoming. Um, but the Father declares to the Son today, I have begotten you to bring forth. Um, so what you're going to note about the idea of being only begotten is it notes uniqueness. Um, trying to look for... Maybe I can't find it right now. I don't want to get too distracted. Let me get back to the notes. We'll get there eventually. I guess it's not time. Okay, so um, if I wasn't clear, I know this isn't for everyone, I get that, but you're going to be attacked eventually. Um, your understanding of Jesus is going to be attacked eventually by the Muslim, by the Jehovah's Witness, by whoever else doesn't believe Jesus is truly God in the flesh. And they're attacking his uniqueness, his unique status as the only begotten, the key word, only begotten. So for him to be beget, begetten, begotten, it means he's the only one. There's no one else who is that. Which is why I said your whole Christian life, your new experience, your new existence um, is built on the concept of Jesus being the exclusive only begotten son. So I'm going to show you why I think it's more helpful when we talk about Jesus being the only begotten son. It's more helpful to note, to say it like this. Jesus is uniquely appointed. He's uniquely appointed to be the only begotten son in our place. As our mediator, as our high priest, as the first resurrected from the dead. This doesn't mean he was, um, you know, it doesn't mean he came into existence and he didn't previously ex pre-exist his human life. His uniqueness in his becoming, that's the emphasis. In other words, when you go, why is Jesus unique? It's because of what he became and what he was before he became that. He was the eternal word, God alongside the Father, before he became a man and put on human flesh and took on human nature. We already saw this in the previous episode. You can go watch that. Um... It's not linked in the description, but you can find it in the playlist. It's like episode six. It's G What does it mean that Jesus is the only begotten son? And we, we looked at that in Hebrews. So far in Hebrews, here's what we've established uh, when we look at Jesus being the only begotten son or the unique one. So far, here's how he's presented. Um, it's his resurrection. He's the first of resurrected humanity. His high priestly service. He's the only true high priest eternally. His kingship. He's the only one over the kingdom, uh, sitting on the throne as the ultimate king. Uh, his sonship and his inheritance, he's the only firstborn. We looked at what that meant. Firstborn does not mean created. It refers to status. He's the first, uh, you know, ultimate son uh, who, has the, who rightfully inherits everything that exists. It notes his supremacy, especially of his name. He's the supreme name above all names. Uh, so this is all packed into what it means that Jesus is the only begotten son. That's just in Hebrews. That's just in Hebrews. 
We talked about how that, you know, Hebrews presents us the only begotten son as being glorified higher than all spiritual beings, right? He ascends as the first resurrected human in our place. He ascends to the status that Adam and Eve forfeited and even beyond that for us. Not that he didn't previously have that status as God, but when he takes on human flesh, what he's saying is, I'm going to be for you guys what you could never be on your own. And he is. He is. It talks about, you know, Jesus conquering all his enemies, like his ultimate power and authority. So when Jesus resurrects and ascends to the Father, think about this. When he resurrects from the dead as the first of resurrected humanity, as the first of new creation, you might say, because his, his, his life from the dead, that's a, that's a kind of new creation coming in. When he resurrects from the dead um, and he ascends to the Father, here's what he becomes. He becomes the first of new resurrected humanity. He becomes the perfect high priest mediating a new covenant. He becomes the true king of the world in his resurrected human nature where Adam failed. He becomes the firstborn heir of the, of, of the world in his humanity. He becomes the supreme name that saves and grants forgiveness and demands worship. He becomes the glorified one above all spiritual beings in all creation because he's not created. He's in a category all on his own and he becomes the victorious conqueror over all the enemies of God and humanity. That's what it means when Jesus is brought forth. No one else fits that description. No one else. That's why he's unique. That's why he's on a just different level. He's set apart from all of creation because he's uncreated. He's eternally existent. He's there with the Father in eternity. He inhabits eternity with the Father and then he puts on human flesh to become for us what Adam and Eve forfeited in the garden and can't be on, on our own. We can't be it. Okay, so what I want you to see um, is, um, and we'll get to Hebrews 5 now. What I want you to see is for Jesus to be the only unique uh, exclusive begotten son of, of God. It means all those things. Resurrection, priesthood, kingship, sonship, inheritance, supremacy, glorification, and conquering of the enemies. Now you're going to see in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, um, the same idea. Okay, We're going to look at all the different New Testament verses used of Jesus and calling him the only begotten son and what the context is. Because everyone just zeroes in on one phrase of a verse and they just destroy the context. They just destroy it. Okay, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. Um, what you're going to see, the, the way the word ganeo is used here, okay, it's going to refer to, I'm not going to tell you before I read it. It says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He didn't exalt himself and assume the position of high priest. But actually, someone else made him a high priest. He was appointed by him who said to him, now the him here we know is the father because of the Old Testament reference he's using from Psalm 110. You are my son today, well, here's our word, Ganeo, I have begotten you. You go on, it says in another place, in other words, here's the continuing thought. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So, in this context, for Jesus to be begotten of the Father is to become what? It's right there. 
to become the high priest for humanity, mediating a new covenant, holding up our end of the new covenant that is built on his blood. So Jesus doesn't exalt himself to become the high priest of a new covenant. He's appointed by who? The Father. How? Because the Father says, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Before Jesus resurrects from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father, he's not the effective high priest for all of humanity. He's the available high priest, but it's not effectively accomplished until he sits at the right hand of the Father to do everything that the Old Testament points to him doing. And then guess what he becomes for us? He becomes our new high priest. He becomes our mediator. He was not previously that before he accomplished our salvation and made way for us to follow in his footsteps into the throne room of the Father. This is why he'll continue and say, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then he'll go off and talk about all the different ways Jesus you know, functions as high priest. But I want you to see that Ganeo here um, means to be the author, you know, the validating source of Jesus' priesthood. Um, so it says, you know, I'm trying to think, did I mix up my verses here? I think I might have. The point here is that ganeo, and we're going to see another word in the Greek, monogene, one of a kind, unique one, um, used of Jesus. The ganeo and monogene, they both note uh, a degree of uniqueness. And so when Jesus is begotten or brought forth, or you might say like metaphorically conceived in the sense that he's brought back from the dead, that's a, that's a uniqueness, a unique status he attains. So, but the word monogene is going to really zone in on the one of a kindness and the uniqueness of Christ. So that's the first instance. It has nothing to do with him being created. It's his priesthood, if anything, is something he, you know, um, is prepared for him to ascend into from his victorious death and resurrection. He, that is begotten. The Father validates him as the high priest. Okay, so if anyone ever tries to use Hebrews 5.5 5 to tell you Jesus was created, you go, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. It has nothing to do with that. It, in fact, it actually has the Father appointing. That's the begetting. The bringing forth, the revealing, the establishing, the approving of. The Father is validating and appointing the Son. Same idea at the baptism of Jesus and the Mount of Transfiguration when he goes up there. What does the Father say? This is my Son, my only Son. Listen to him. Um, we're going to see the same word ganeo in the Greek. You know, Jesus being begotten. We're going to see this in Acts 13 as well. Acts 13, um, I believe it's Paul preaching. I don't think it matters who it is, but I want to make sure. Brothers, sons, David... Samuel the prophet, men of Israel, Paul. Okay, Paul is preaching here. And in verse 32, this is what he says. It says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he's fulfilled. So there's something that God promised to the patriarchs of our faith that Jesus accomplishes. That's why all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So he has fulfilled this to our children. How? Well, by raising Jesus from the dead. And you go, ah, it's a stretch. Well, also, he's going to quote the Psalms to let you know that this was foretold. This was, this was prophesied way ahead of time. So he's going to quote Psalm um, chapter 2 here. You are my son. Today 
I have begotten you. Same idea we saw in Hebrews 5.5. Same idea. So the begetting here, the being brought forth uniquely, refers to what? Jesus being raised. Why? Because there's no other person or being that's going to fulfill every promise made to the patriarchs through his death and resurrection. There's no other atoning sacrifice that's, that's valuable and good enough to cover all of humanity's sins. There's no one capable of handling our debt and taking on human evil. There's no one good enough to meet the law of God perfectly and be the perfect human. And there's no one else that's going to resurrect from the dead apart from Jesus making way for us to follow in his footsteps. So Jesus is unique here in the, in the sense that his resurrection is attributed to him as like no one else has done that. So, he's raised. That's the begetting here. He's brought forth. He's shown to be the Messiah. He's proven to be the Christ. That's what begetting here means. So, if you want to talk about him being brought forth, it's not him coming into existence. It's a revealing. It's like pulling back the curtains to show what's always been there. That's exactly what Jesus talks about his ministry as being. It's revelatory. It's revelatory, meaning... Jesus is showing us what's always been behind the curtain of the Old Testament. And now that you can pull back the curtain, he's going, it's been me the whole time. So this is the Father revealing the Son, like fully validating him as the Messiah. How? By raising him from the dead. And you could say, well, in some sense, the new life is something that was brought forth as well. Sure, doesn't mean he's created at all. So let's look at another Greek word. Uh, which gets translated only begotten, but carries the same idea as ganeo, G-E-N-N-A-O. Okay, this word is monogone, M-O-N-O-G-O-N-E-S. Okay, see, I can spell too. This word means unique, uh, one of a kind. In other words, the only one that exists in its class all on its own. For instance, John 3.16, the word monogone is going to be used <clears throat> but instead of the father begetting and bringing forth or revealing the son, here we have Jesus referred to as the only begotten son, depending on your translation. It says, for God so loved the world, I know you got this you know, tattooed on your chest, but read it anyway, that he gave his only son. There's a giving here. Who's the father giving? Okay, the father is giving his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jack says the screen is not working. Anyone else um, say the screen isn't working? Because if it's not, let's fix it. Or is it good? Is it just Jack? Is he crazy? Or is it actually working for you guys? Let me know. Never mind. Okay. He said, never mind. Jeez, Jack. How are you going to do that to me? So John 3.16. It's the... the um, the Father giving the Son. Why? Because He loved the world. That's key. And then what does it effectively do for the Father to give the Son? Well, now, whoever believes in Him, the Son, which is effectively believing the Father and what He says about the Son, that person who believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. And then it'll go on and say, God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved. So the father goes, I really want to save them. They're royally screwed, and we can do nothing about it. We're hopeless and helpless. 
So the Father sends the Son our only hope. This giving of Jesus, this sending of Jesus, relates to his sonship. Notice, Jesus being the only Son means he's the only, like, effective, eternal gift of the Father that accomplishes salvation and makes way for all our sin to be atoned for. He's the only one that can grant us salvation and righteousness. That relates to his sonship. So for Jesus here, the word monogene translated his only son or only begotten, it means only of a kind, one of a kind, the only in its class. So believing in the son, there's, in other words, for Jesus to be the only begotten son has nothing to do with being created. It means he's the only one that salvation is possible through. He's the only one that can grant forgiveness. He's the only name that makes righteous. There's no other name you can believe in and trust in that will make you right with the Father. No other name. That's what makes Jesus unique. He's exclusive. He's the only one. You're not going to find anyone that's done what he's done. Perfect life, fulfilling every prophecy, changing the way time is measured. The years are counting down to his arrival, and now they're counting up from his, you know, his birth. And Jesus, you know, living, meeting the law of God perfectly, dying our death, paying our debt effectively. He took all human evil across all of human history upon himself and then broke out of the, the grave just because he could and conquered death. You tell me anyone else who's done that. You won't find anyone. And the tomb is empty. You can go look. Historically, ain't nobody. Well, it doesn't mean it's just a conversation for another day. The point here is he's the only real son sent from the Father to accomplish salvation, righteousness, and forgiveness and make us be able to enter the kingdom. That's what it means. It has nothing to do with being created. So believing in the Son here and gaining eternal life in the name of the Son, that's what it means for him to be the only unique one, the only unique God-man too. The world of unbelievers are appointed for judgment and condemnation, but Jesus, being sent of the Father, came to bring salvation even though we need, you know, deserve, rather, condemnation. Okay, so let me show you another instance of the word monogamy in John 1.14. John likes this concept, especially. Like, he likes using this language of Jesus. And this is why John loves calling himself the one whom Jesus loved. Because, man, what an honor. So, the word begotten in John 3.16 refers to being sent to give life, not to condemn, and he's the only one that can. John 1.14, same word, monogene, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. How do you become something if you didn't pre-exist that human life and existence, or that human nature? Because you can't become something unless you're already there to become it. This assumes the Word, whoever the Word is, is already existing before He becomes and takes on flesh. It's not that hard. I can't become something until I'm, I exist to effectively change forms or change roles and position. So, He dwells among us. That's crazy. He becomes one of us. A real human representative that's going to do everything we can't do for ourselves. And we've seen His glory. Now watch. The glory as of the only Son. There's our word, monogene. The only Son, one of a kind, unique one, the only in its class. He's the only one. And he's from the Father. Notice again, like in John 3.16, for Jesus to be the only Son means he's sent from the Father. John wants you to see Jesus as a gift from the Father. And Jesus lays his own life down, not against his will, 
but he willingly lays his life down as a gift. So this is the ultimate gift. There's no other gift that comes anywhere close to the value of Jesus. There's no better gift the Father can give, full of grace and truth. So contextually, what it means for Jesus to be the only begotten here means, guess what? He's the only word emanating from the Father that took on human life. Meaning, he's the only mix between divine and humanity. He's the only one in existence who is God, yet put on human flesh. And he's sent from the Father to accomplish our salvation, which is, you know, the grace and truth here. The glory. No one else is the glory of the Father. No one else is sent from the Father to be his exact glory personified. No one else. How about John 1.18? No one has ever seen God. Now think about what he just said. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father. Meaning, whatever Jesus is revealing in his glory, it's showing us the Father. Isn't that what he said? Didn't he say that in John, like, what, 14, 15, 16, around there? He said, look, when you see me, you see the Father. And they're like, what? This is exactly what, what he means. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now, now that should just end this whole debate, and we should go home. The Jehovah's Witness Bible will mistranslate this until they can, you know, they will just do everything they can to destroy the truth. It's ridiculous. No one has ever seen God, and they'll translate this to be something else. And we could talk about, you know, what it actually means. that Well, technically, Theos here, it could be any God. No one has ever seen God. What do you think he's going to go with that argument? The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. What what does that mean? It's another way of saying he's revealed the glory of the Father. He's revealed the name and the character of the Father. Who else has done that perfectly? No one. And guess what? No one's ever seen God. That's how he starts this verse. So for Jesus to be monogene, one of a kind, the only unique Son of God, the only begotten, contextually, it relates to no one seeing God. But Jesus is the only one who perfectly reveals the Father and makes the Father known to humanity. No one else does that. Do do you see the language? I'm not making it. No one has ever seen God. And Jesus here, the Word, is referred to as the only God. Just pay attention to that. He's referred to as the only God who reveals the Father, who is at the Father's side. Where do you think we get this language of Jesus being the divine son alongside the Father? It's all across the New Testament and the Old Testament. Okay, so for John 1, 14 through 18, this little section right here, here's what it means for Jesus to be monogamy, the one of a kind, the only unique one in his class, no one besides him. Jesus gives the right to become children of God through our faith in him right here. Who else has that authority and that power to make someone a child of God? No one. We're born of God through the Spirit, not born of of flesh or by our own efforts and labor. We're born, born into His spiritual life through the Spirit. Verse 14, the Word actually becomes flesh, and in other words, He puts on humanity, and He reveals the glory of God, veiled in His humanity. And then verse 18 
We see that Jesus reveals the Father perfectly and fully. He's the only one at the Father's side, at the right hand, his divine Son, the only begotten, and he makes the Father known. And no one has seen God until God puts on flesh and reveals his veiled glory to humanity. It's pretty clear in the text, isn't it? Once you really start working through the arguments your Muslim friend or your Jehovah's Witness friend will throw at you, you really start to understand how fragile their arguments really are. They fall apart when you just read the scriptures. They really do. So begotten here, again, refers to being the only sent eternal word emanating from the Father, taking on flesh and revealing the glory of the Father and making us born again. No one. No one else can do that. So, let me take you to 1 John 4, 9. You know what you're going to see here? The word monogene means one of a kind, one and only, and unique one. The only one in its class. <clears throat> 1 John 4, 9. And contextually, we're talking about love. So think about what John just said in John chapter 1. That the glory of the Father was revealed by this only begotten Son who is at the right hand and he's also called the Word of God. 1 John verse four, chapter 4 verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest. Remember how we talked about to be, the own, to be begotten, uh, to be, be, for Jesus, for the Father to beget the Son. It's a revealing aspect. It's a making known. It's a declaration through signs, through wonders, through events, through the resurrection, through his approval of the Son. He's making known who his Son really is to humanity. That's why when it comes to Jesus being the only unique one, the only Son of God, the only begotten, it relates to him revealing the glory of the Father, or the Father revealing his Son, or here, him being made manifest or revealed among us. Look. The love of God was made manifest. It's as if the, the emanating love of God, you personify that, put on arms and legs and, and, and human flesh, and now Jesus is the love of God revealed to humanity. Who else can, what other being in existence can claim to be the full, perfect love of God personified? No one. So, Jesus reveals the Father. He reveals the glory of the Father. The Father reveals the Son, who's always been behind the curtain of the Old Testament. And he goes, ta-da! And the resurrection, and the signs, and the wonders, and the, and the church, and the Spirit of God, and all these different things. And now the Son is revealing the love of the Father. Or you might say the, the Father is sending the Son to reveal His love and glory through the only begotten Son. And the love is made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Notice all the different elements that are present in each of these passages. Life through the son, being sent from the father, being the only one, and him revealing the father's name. All four of those, whether you go to John chapter 1, 14, John 1, 18, you can go to John 3, 16, there's life in his name. He reveals the father, right? Um, he's, I lost my train of thought. He's, he offers life, he's revealed by the Father, um, he imperfectly embodies the name and the character of the Father, and he's sent, or he's given, he's given. 
So you can you can try and you know do some some Greek gymnastics and hermeneutic your way around these very clear statements and very clear biblical arguments. You're not going to get far. I promise you that. You ain't going to get far. So John 1.14, John 1.18, John 3.16, 1 John 4.9. Here it's the Father revealing His love. How? Well, by making it manifest among us by revealing the Son. The only begotten Son. So guess what? Begotten here refers to being re- revealed and sent. Just like in 1 John 4, 1, 18, 1 John 3, 16, sent, revealed, perfectly personifying and embodying the name of the Lord and offering life. Just saying. Just saying. How about we go to Matthew 3, 17, where the Father declares, and it, now, now we're getting into the statements. This is my son, which is a form of begetting or approving or revealing or bringing forth. Okay. Matthew 3, 17 when Jesus gets baptized, a voice from heaven, which you're going to see at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus takes the three bozos up on the mountain because they're probably going to cause trouble if he doesn't bring them with him, right? They get to see his revealed glory. There's going to be a, a voice from the clouds that says, this is my son, listen to him. Same idea here. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So guess what the Father is doing by calling Jesus His beloved Son? He's validating and approving of the Son to humanity. It's a revealing. It's one thing for um, uh, Jesus to just show up, but He talks about this a lot. That, look, I'm not the only witness to what I'm doing. We have the Spirit. We have the Father. We have John the Baptist. We have the Word in the old the Hebrew Bible. That, that validates me if you would only search the scriptures. Jesus has a lot of witness to what he does. But the Father is the main one. Matthew 17, 5. Now we're on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we have uh, Peter, James, and John uh, up there with Jesus. And he, they see Moses and Elijah. And he's still speaking. Peter's got his foot in his mouth. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Just, just kind of looms over them all of a sudden. And a voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Whatever the voice sounded like, it caused them to be terrified and fall on their faces. So, guess what the Father's doing here? He's saying, yeah, Moses and Elijah, great. The Law and the Prophets, great. The Hebrew Bible, fantastic. Guess who is the substance of all those things? Guess who is the greater word to humanity? My Son, listen to Him. So for Jesus to be the, the, the only begotten or the beloved son, it's the father validating. How? Well, the baptism, the Mount of Transfiguration, and Romans will tell us, or Paul will tell us in Romans, the resurrection is a part of God validating his son. Romans 1.4, it says he was descended from David, the son. The sonship has a lot to do with resurrection, inheritance, the name, uh, the future, the kingdom, right? So this is about the son who was descended from David according to the flesh, like he physically came from David. He was declared to be the son of God. Notice the declaring here. It's a declaration. How? Well, he was declared to be the son of God in power 
according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, in case you were confused, I don't think he's talking about Jesus. Right there, right there, Junior. Jesus Christ, our Lord. End of verse 4. So, the word uh, here, I think I got it before I make a mistake. Let me pull it up. The word for Jesus being declared uh, in the Greek, I believe, if I didn't make a mistake in my notes, having been declared, uh, that's right, it's pronounced horizo, and what it means is to determine, to appoint, to designate. This is not just the Father saying something about the Son. I want to make that very clear. It's one thing for the Father to say, this is my... It's another thing for Him to be established, appointed, and designated as the only begotten Son. So this is not just, hey guys, guess who Jesus is? This is, let me show you who He is, but also, as that's happening, Jesus is being established as what He was proclaimed to have to be in the Old Testament. Our mediator, our high priest, our first resurrected representative, our means of forgiveness, our sacrifice, our savior. He's becoming that along the way. Jesus wasn't savior until he died to save humanity. Like he had salvation available, but it wasn't effectively applied or made accessible to us until he accomplished it. Right? Jesus was always had the power to resurrect from the dead, but he doesn't become the first resurrected human until he actually un- goes into the grave and comes out. Right? He's always had the, been able to uh, you know, hold our end of the covenant together, but he didn't establish a new covenant until he sat at the right hand of the Father. So you can see how along the way that there's different uh, elements of Jesus' position that are being put intact and established whether it's first, whether it's our representative, whether it's our sacrifice, whether it's our our life, whether it's our high priest and our mediator, along the work he's doing, he's being established as what the Father always declared him to be. So this is not just God is saying, hey guys, check out my son, he's pretty lit. And this is this is the Father saying, let me show you that I have stamped my son with my approval. And also, as I stamp him, know he's being... It's almost like an inauguration. He's being absolutely designated and appointed to be what we need him to be. So the word horizo, again, means to be appointed by decree, to be revealed, marked out, the son, the only son, the only son. Psalm chapter 89 is another good verse to go to. It says, you know, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So guess what? Firstborn here has nothing to do with being created, but actually being established as the ultimate king. So the word here, uh, appointed um, or made, is the word Nathan in Hebrew. And it means to put or to set. Very similar to Horizo, to, to appoint or decree or to establish He's established as the highest king of the entire planet, of all humanity. And so this is the sonship. You are my father. Jesus being the son here is being the ultimate king of all humanity and the ultimate firstborn status um, in the family of God. Okay? 
So, so far, every time we looked at begotten, to be brought forth, or uh, monogene, uh, the only the only begotten son, none of those um, have the connotation of being brought into existence. None of them. Just so you know, in case you're wondering. There's a few more things I want to show you. Okay. A few more things. They're in Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews 2, 4, 5, 9, 10, 11, 17, Hebrews 7, 16, and Hebrews 13, 20. Okay. And what I'm going to show you is the surrounding context of um, these these places where he's called the only begotten son or he's, he's brought forth. He's, you know, whatever the language is, he's the only, he's begotten of the father in all of those different places in Hebrews. It's surrounded by a set of ideas that if you miss it, then it's not going to be good. Okay. So we'll get to that in a minute before we do I need to get some more water and go potty. All right. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly clearly, so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we... Um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Okie dokie. This is probably late. Someone left a comment on TikTok that says, um, are you saying that Jesus wasn't really begotten, born in sin? It's the opposite of what I'm saying. I'm saying he's not begotten in the way that you've been taught or indoctrinated to think he is. Um, that's why I'm trying to unpack this for you. Otherwise, you miss it. All right, so let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. We have like 15 minutes left, maybe, and then we is done. All right, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. And then next week, we'll look at um, how this all relates to our faith and our, our reality now as children of God 
all Jesus again, Jesus being the only begotten son makes way for everything we know and experience as children of God now. It's incredible. It's incredible. So Hebrews 2 4 it says, Look, um, this great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord. So Jesus was declaring this great salvation. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Okay? While God also bore witness, right? So there's a validation there. There's an approving and saying, look, I'm going to show you this is true. How? By signs, by wonders, by miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So how does God bear witness about His Son and the salvation that comes through His Son? Well, He bears witness through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit. We go to verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, right? It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, this is in the original you know, quotation in Psalm chapter 8. David is going off about how God regards humanity in such a wonderful way. Like, why would you allow us to have this authority over the earth? Why would you choose us? Why would you be mindful of us? Why would you concern yourself with, with little creatures like us? You're, you care for us so wonderfully. And the way the author of Hebrews takes Psalm 8 and makes it about the ultimate human is, is incredible. But the point here is that within the context of the Son being validated by signs and wonders and the gifts of the Spirit, we also see, right, that the world to come is subjected to this Son. And then he's going to quote Psalm 8 to prove that. That, well, humanity's always had rule over the earth. That's the intention. God had created Adam and Eve to be stewards and rulers over the earth under his authority. Uh, we failed to do that. We lost our authority and our rule. What Jesus does is he wins that back for us and he conquers death and he conquers our enemies that we were powerless to conquer on our own. And he actually subjects the world to himself by doing so. So the world is subjected to Jesus, right? Um, you go down to verse nine and it says, look, at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, right? Like I don't see a world that's in complete submission to Jesus yet, but we do see him who for a little while, and I want you to see this, he's focusing in now on the only begotten son of Hebrews, the divine son, actually, Jesus. So this is about Christ. It says, look, we don't see the world the way it should be, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, this is where people will take the word made to be created. And again, it's the becoming, it's the appointing, Right? It's the assuming a different role in a different position. So he's made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So you're going to start to see that these statements where it says, uh, today you are my son, I've begotten you, or today you've become my son and I'm your father, or, or he's the only begotten son. In Hebrews, these different statements about Jesus as the only son are, are packaged around these other statements that he has ultimate authority over the world, right? He's crowned with glory and honor, exalted above every spiritual being, even though he assumed a position lower than the angels, right? So he assumed a temporary lower status 
as humanity, as our representative, he takes death upon himself. He takes, tastes death for everyone, probably tastes nasty, and he goes through it for us. Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in case you missed it in chapter 1, like this son, this only begotten son, who's appointed and begotten of the Father, he actually is the one that everything exists for. He's the purpose of all things. And he's the one by whom all things exist. So he's not just the purpose of every created thing and the reason for its existence. He's the means by which it actually exists. He's the one upholding the universe by the word of his power, as we saw in chapter 1, right here. Um, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus. Okay, so you can keep reading and um, you'll get to verse 11. It was fitting that he, by the way, who has authority and power and rightful ownership over all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Okay, so this is where we start to see the idea of our sonship or our daughtership start to be possible because Jesus is the only begotten son. So now it's not just, oh, he's so wonderful. He's the only begotten son. He's divine. He's amazing. He's the only exclusive one begotten of the father. Now it's actually, that makes way for many children, not just sons, but children to come to glory. It was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, so Jesus is actually perfected here. And you go, well, clearly he couldn't be God because he wasn't perfect until a certain point. To have any imperfection means he can't be God. Do you know what it means for Jesus to be made perfect here through his suffering? His tasting death for everyone. Let's just put that on the table. Every human being that has ever lived, every human being that will ever live and is now living, Jesus has tasted death for them. So salvation is available to anyone. It's not going to be actually accomplished in in terms of they won't receive that. Not everyone will. But Jesus does bring many sons to glory. He's effectively accomplished salvation for all people, but not, not everyone wants it. So what does it mean that he's perfected through suffering? Well, he becomes the founder of our salvation. Well, verse 11 He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So what what right do I or you have, have, what right do we have to be called brothers or sisters of Jesus, the only begotten Son, the divine Son, through whom all things exist and by whom all things exist and for whom all things exist? Why, Why would I have any right to be a part of his divine family? Well, because he tasted death for you. And through that death, he was what's called perfected. He effectively becomes the means of our salvation in order to bring us to glory. That's what it means that he's perfected through suffering. There's a setting apart. Jesus is set apart. So you have have the Father setting apart the Son as as the source of salvation for humanity. That's what the cross is. But you have humanity setting Jesus aside as trash, throwing him outside the city, putting him on the cross, hanging him as a criminal. They regard him as nothing. And just like scripture says, 
the stone that the builders rejected actually became the cornerstone. So for Jesus to be perfected here means what? He's set apart or sanctified by the Father through his, his death and suffering to become the founder and the means of our salvation. He becomes the way into glory. He becomes the one who brings us into that. In that sense, he's brought through the grave, up from the dead, and that's what it looks like for him to be perfected. It has nothing to do with moral imperfection. It has nothing to do with uh, lacking anything. He just wasn't the founder of our salvation and the means of our righteousness and forgiveness until he went to the cross and accomplished it. Until he went into the grave, broke out in power and said, look, now you can have salvation in my name. Because the Father perfects Jesus through that to be what he wasn't prior. So in that sense, you might say, well, he was lacking that status and position prior to his death and resurrection. That's fine. That's fine. So in that sense, you might say there was an imperfection with the process, but once it was finalized and perfected, well, now anyone can come and be saved. Scroll down to verse 17, and it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. In this chapter alone, we're referred to um, as the brothers of Jesus or the sisters of the family of Jesus three times. That concept, weirdly enough, is so foreign to a lot of Christians now, we're actually in the same family as our Savior, as our King, as our God. He's, we're a part of the Father's family through the Son. And I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. I want to save this for next episode. But he had to be made like us in every respect. So what does it mean that Jesus was made like us? John tells us. John tells us exactly what that means. He already existed. He was the eternal word emanating from the Father. But he became one of us. So in that sense, he's made like his brothers. Not created. Takes on a different form. Assumes a different mode, you might say. Assumes a different role or position. But he remains God. So, I've said this before. Like, I, I exist right now. Okay? I can choose to take on another job. And I would be made an employee of the company. I would be made a janitor. I'd be made a landscaper. I'd be made, you know, the CEO of a Fortune 500. I, I'd be made that. It's this appointing, authorizing statement. Not a creation coming into existence. So, he's made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, Jesus has to perfectly, not just embody as God, the divine, but also he has to perfectly represent us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So the context of Jesus being perfected through his suffering is that he's actually becoming or being appointed or authorized by God to be our, our high priest. Jesus can't be the high priest for humanity unless he's one of us. Okay, Jesus can't fully represent us before the Father and mediate a covenant before us and the Father unless he's one of us. And so he becomes one of us to become our faithful high priest on the other side of his death. And it's in the service of God to make payment for the sins of the people. So Jesus sanctifies us that we might be his, his brothers, children of God with him. Now he becomes our merciful, faithful high priest by taking on humanity. 
Jesus actually subjects himself to even temptation. Everything the human condition has to offer. Okay? Jesus subjected himself to that. Okay? Hebrews chapter 7. And we have two more verses after this. This is, again, what it means that he is the only begotten, appointed, designated, authorized, revealed, and only exclusive Son of God. Hebrews 7.16. Here's the language again. This becomes evident when another high priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest. Does that mean he was created? No. Again, it's taking on a new role or position he previously did not have as one of us in our place. Not on the basis of a legal requirement, right? But by the power of an indestructible life. So you go, well, what's Jesus' credentials to be our high priest? Mm, he kind of resurrected from the dead, Tommy. Did you do that? You can't be our high priest. He can. He has it. If you rise from the dead, we'll talk. On your own, by your own power, just conquering the grave, deciding, I don't want to be dead anymore. Yeah, if you do that, come talk to me. Jesus is the only one who has. So therefore, he has every right to be our high priest. It's on the basis of an indestructible life. Not just the fact that he resurrected, but the fact that his life is indestructible because he's the substance and the source of life itself. So Jesus becomes a high priest. Can we establish that? on the basis of his indestructible life. This is Jesus becoming, for us, as a human being, what he wasn't prior. Nothing to do with being created. If anything, you can say, well, his priesthood was created, or his, his new life from the grave, that was fashioned by the Father, sure. But either way, he, he just puts it on. He puts on new life. It's fitted just for him. Hebrews 7.28, if you scroll down a little bit, it says, the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priest, uh, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son. Every time we've talked about Jesus being only begotten or um, the firstborn, it's appointment language. It's the father designating the son to be something and authorizing and approving and saying, look, I'm telling you, I'm stamping this with my approval. You miss it, that's your fault. This is the father validating his son, appointing his son to be made our high priest because he's been perfected. So in what way was Jesus perfected forever? Well, he went into the grave to rise to indestructible life, to become our high priest, to extend us his sonship. And the word of God's promise appoints Jesus uh, to be our perfect, indestructible never-changing high priest. Hebrews 13.20 is the last scripture in Hebrews I want to take you to. Okay, And then I want to talk about next week how this relates to our sonship, our daughtership, to be gender-exclusive or inclusive. Hebrews 13.20, it says, May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So, who was brought up from the dead? King Jesus. Who effectively becomes the great shepherd of the fold 
to represent us as well as a high priest and as a shepherd that leads us, who establishes an eternal covenant on his blood by being, you know, uh, by rising from the dead. It's Jesus. For Jesus to be appointed, begotten, brought forth, conceived, you might say, even from the dead, not brought into existence, it means he's resurrected. That's the main, I believe, one of the main focuses of Jesus being the only begotten son, is he's brought forth from the dead. He resurrects, breaks out of the grave, conquers death, and then becomes everything we need him to be as our representative. Because prior to that, he had not gone into the grave. He had not been a person that represented humanity and paid for their sins. So I'm fine with saying even like Jesus being brought forth from the dead or conceived from the dead. In that sense, like the new life is a result of him busting out of the grave. It's that born again illustration where you and I are born again. How? Because we spiritually come alive after dying to our old life. That's the picture of Jesus rising from the grave. He's the only exclusive, unique one to do that. So you can bring every argument to the table as it relates to, well, he's only begotten. He's brought forth. He's conceived. He's created. Nope. You won't find any scripture that says that. Well, you know, he's, he's, um, he's the firstborn. Refers to status and rank. Has nothing to do with being created. If you are fighting against the Jesus being God in the flesh, you're going to fail. All your arguments are going to fall short. The scripture makes it abundantly clear that Jesus really is God in the flesh. As the firstborn, only begotten, exclusive son that represents all humanity and extends us his sonship. That's who he is. It, it, like our whole etern- our eternity hangs on Jesus being this exclusive only begotten son. Otherwise, there's no rightful access to the family of God. There's no way to become an heir. There's no way to be born again to spiritual indestructible life unless he goes through it himself and makes way for us to have it. And legally, he's gone through that process and he's represented us and he's paid our debt and he died our death and he took human evil upon himself in his flesh and he broke out of the grave and conquered death in our place. So that's what it means that Jesus is the only begotten son. He's the only unique one of a kind. You can go monogene, um, gineo. He's, um, you know, brought forth, um, becomes, appointed, validating, designated, all these different words, revealed. That's why when, when people just run to a Greek lexicon and they're like, let me build an argument based off how this word is used one time in scripture, you're not going to come to the right conclusions. Let me, let me just help you. When you do a word study on like a Greek or Hebrew word, don't just go to one verse that uses that word in one way. Because that word can actually take on different forms depending on the context. Look at all the ways it's used. Look at all the surrounding elements when it's used. Look at what the Greek actually means um, and, and, and build an idea of that word based on how it's employed in different contexts and then make sense of that in the context that you're trying to read it into or re, you know draw it out of correctly. All right, so that's all I have for you guys today. Wednesday will be a Q&A. I hope you'll be there. It'll be fun. 
Visit AboveReproachMinistry.com if you haven't already, if you didn't even know that this is an online ministry and we have a bunch of free resources available to you. Uh, all of my sermon notes, free Bible study classes online, free Bible study devotionals, free Bible study worksheets, our online church community through the Discord app, um, our podcast, our second podcast, all of this material on YouTube. Whew. You guys make this possible, so thank you for supporting this ministry and my wife and my two kids and all the people that are getting reached and the leadership here, you praying for us. It makes a big difference, so thank you. And I'll see you guys in on Wednesday. Um, when we talk, just talk through some questions, maybe answer some, some things that need to be clarified. I hope I'll do a good job, so pray that I would. All right? You'll see you guys later. You guys keep moving towards Jesus, and uh, go love Jesus today. He's the only begotten Son. All right?